Cedar Street, I love you. It is the joy of my heart to be with you. And I say it all the time because I mean it all the time. I've been looking forward to our time together this week. And as you can see on the uh, screen, we are entering into a new season together. Uh, Today marks the beginning of a new sermon series. We're going to be walking together through the book of 1 Timothy. And the title of our sermon series for the next few weeks is going to be Focusing on the Family of God. Focusing on the Family of God. I didn't have enough room on that slide to put a subheading, but if I could put a subheading, I'd say that uh, for the next few weeks, we're going to be believing, behaving, and becoming a true local church by God's design for God's glory to reflect God's kingdom. Okay, believing, behaving, and becoming a local church. When I say the word church, all of us have an image in our mind of what a church should look like, what it should sound like, and many of us have conjured up that idea on experience. We think of church based on the churches that we've been to. We think a pastor should act the way he acts because of the pastors that we've had. Some of those things may be good, but then some of those things may not necessarily be good. We've got to go to the Word of God to tell us, are we the local church that God has called for us to be? Now, I'm going to be honest with you. This is not the easiest book for a pastor to preach through. And the reason why is this. The world has gotten further and further and further away from the Word of God, you may have noticed. So as we come to the Word of God, you're going to notice in the next few weeks, even even in the last year or two, how much further away our country and our world have gotten from the things that I'm going to be speaking on in such a way that when I'm even just reading the text, there are going to be certain passages that you say, whoa, whoa. Either A, I forgot that that was in God's book, or B, I'm, I'm just really not living that way, or C, do I even really believe this? So I believe this may be the most challenging sermon series that we have had since I have been called to be your pastor, but I'm not going to shy away from it because God put it on my heart several months ago, and I've been preparing and praying and seeking God's will in this because I desperately want when God looks around at at all the churches that seek to glorify Him and worship Him. I just want this to be a place that He could smile at and say, you know, they're not perfect. we got our own warts and wrinkles just like everybody else. But that's a local church by my design for my glory that reflects my kingdom. That's my prayer for our church, and that's my prayer for this sermon series. So I'm going to start us off in the first 11 verses of 1 Timothy chapter 1. The title of our message here today is Laying Down God's Law. I want to start the way I typically do by asking you a personal question. Probably be a funny one today for some of you. What laws in our country do you think really don't apply to you or that are socially acceptable to break? Okay, when I talk about law, I want you to think about your daily life. And I want you to answer this question. You don't have to say it out loud. You can, it's rhetorical. You can think about it. But when I say law, what are some laws that you automatically break on a weekly basis because your first thought is, eh, that don't apply to me. Or B, everybody else breaks it, so why shouldn't I? All right, the first and foremost, I would probably say, is is the speed limit, okay? Unless you're driving through register or other communities that have speed traps, and you'll you'll probably get caught once, or somebody else will get caught once before you finally learn, yeah, they're going to enforce that one. All right, maybe it's not speed limits. Maybe it's stop signs and stop lights. I learned that one the hard way at Georgia Southern. I remember one time in college, it was... uh, probably about 2.30 in the morning, and I was leaving a friend's house to go home, and I come drifting up to a stop sign right before you get on the 301 bypass, and I remember thinking to myself, do I really need to come to a complete stop here? It's 2.30 in the morning, so I did not 
come to a full stop, but there was a police officer about 10 yards behind me that thought, yes, you do need to come to a complete stop. And he reminded me. He was happy to hand me a sheet of paper that reminded me. Uh, you know, for some, for some it's stoplights. Now they have those cameras that take the picture uh, as you're guiding, gliding through the uh, stoplight. So in Savannah, people are stopping a lot more than they used to. Maybe it's other silly things. Tags on your mattress. Who in this room has ripped the tag off your mattress? I want to know names. All right? Or if you remember in the 1980s or 90s, you remember recording TV shows off of television with a VHS when you had the FBI warning when the movie would start on HBO or whatever channel, do not record this, basically. And what did we do? We recorded the recording that said, do not record. <laughs> um, we could continue to name things. Here's, here's the fact of the matter. We live in a world that assumes that rules are made to be broken. And you know why we believe that? Because when God gave us his first ten rules, the Ten Commandments, we couldn't keep those. And we've had trouble keeping rules ever since. We really have. We operate on these principles that laws are made to be broken, but God's law is different. God's law is eternal. God's law is truth yesterday, today, and forever. And it's something that we deviate from, and when we do, we get in some serious trouble. The main idea that I'd like to share, the big idea for the first 11 verses of 1 Timothy is this. When God's family disregards the truth of God's law, we reject His holy standards and forfeit His loving grace. Let me say that one more time for the note-takers. When God's family disregards the truth of God's law, we reject His holy standards and forfeit His loving grace. So how do we, how do we avoid rejecting His holiness? How do we avoid not being able to receive his loving grace. Well, I'm glad you had those thoughts in your mind. And if you do, would you join me again in the book of 1 Timothy? We'll be in chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. If you do not have a, gra- a Bible, grab the pew Bible in front of you. We're going to go to page 1177 in your pew Bible. Again, page 1177 in your pew Bible. And keep that Bible open. We're going to go verse by verse by verse. But if you would stand at this time out of the reverence of the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word... Again, we are in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 11. Hear God's word to us, starting in verse 1 of chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Jesus Christ our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered into vain discussion desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they are making confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, 
For those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. Again, we thank you and praise you. God, you are so holy and we are so not holy. We thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is holy in our behalf and now is living in us and through us so that we can be holy as you have required. And Father, this law that you have revealed to us, it is eternal, and we don't understand it sometimes. We mishandle it sometimes. And so, Father, I just pray, I just pray this would be a time of worship as we walk verse by verse, that you would help me, that you would speak through me, that we would have greater clarity about how the local church could understand and respond to your law, that we would never compromise your holy standards or forfeit your loving grace. Father, be with us at this time, I pray, in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. That word law conjures up thoughts and ideas. You may think of a police officer or a badge or a gun or a jailhouse. But then the law of God conjures up different thoughts. Some of those may be good, some of those not so good. So I want to clarify, if you never understood when the Bible talks about law, or you understood law, but you don't understand how it applies to us as Christians, today's the day we can make this clear. I want to make it as clear as I can, because I understand at the surface level it can be a bit confusing if we don't clarify. All right, so when we talk about law, primarily what... uh, Paul is doing when he's talking to Timothy is he's talking about the law that God handed down to the people of Israel through Moses in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All right, now if you remember, we've talked about this for several weeks now. When God wanted to reveal who he was to a world that did not know him after Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, God decided initially that he would reveal himself through nature. All right, so the people would know that a God exists, but he would reveal himself uniquely through a nation, and that nation was Israel. All right, so we talk about him making that promise to Abraham, and then Abraham had a son named Isaac, and then Isaac had a son named Jacob, and then Jacob had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of this one nation. And those tribes eventually went into Egypt, and they were enslaved for several hundred years, and then God sent Moses into Egypt to lead them out of Egypt, and eventually... Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, okay, and now the mindset, everyone's thinking Charlton Heston, right? Moses goes up on the mountain, and God hands down to him the law. Okay, this law starts with ten commandments, and he hands it down from Moses to the people of God, the nation of Israel, and this was the law that was supposed to govern the people and, and set a standard of holiness so that when the rest of the world would look at Israel, they would know that a God exists because Israel would live at a standard higher than everyone else, and they would do it by the power of God and not by the power of themselves. And eventually, those 10 laws became 613 laws in the Old Testament, and it became oppressive. It became overwhelming. It became something that Israel could not maintain. Therefore, they began to understand more and more they needed a Savior. So the law eventually pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ, who had to fulfill it on our behalf. I'm going to get to more of that later. But if Jesus Christ fulfilled all the requirements of the law, 
then we could be quick to say as Christians, the law doesn't apply to us then. We don't live under law, we live under grace, so just forget the law. But that would be a huge error. And here's the error. When you think of the law, okay, when you open the Old Testament and you read all kinds of crazy things you've never heard of before, you read about these ceremonies and festivals and sacrifices of animals and all of these different things, if you were to look at that and say, none of that applies to me because, well, Jesus fulfilled all that, you'd be partially right and partially wrong. All right, so here's how you can understand the Old Testament. Every law in the Old Testament can be can broken off into one of three categories, okay? And I'll give you an easy way to remember it. It can be broken off into civil, ceremonial, or moral law, all right? Civil law, I want you to think of king. Think of a king's crown. Civil law was specific laws that God gave to Israel to become their civil government, how they could operate. Of course, Israel had a king eventually. Uh, it went from a theocracy to a monarchy, and then the monarchy, of course, was all the kings that were there before the Lord Jesus. And so when you think civil law, when you see all these laws in the Old Testament that talk about kings and all these other things, that's civil law that applied to Israel. Jesus fulfilled that. It doesn't apply to us. All right? Then there's ceremonial law. Okay? This is where it gets really confusing. You open up the book of Leviticus, and you see all these blood laws, and you wonder, well, why are we not outside in the backyard of Cedar Street sacrificing goats and lambs and rams and all these other things? Why are we not doing that anymore? Because those were ceremonial laws. Okay? Those were laws. And if you think crown for civil, all right, for ceremonial, I want you to think of temple. Okay? I want you to think about the temple where God was worshipped okay, in the Old Testament. There was Solomon's temple. Then there was the second temple that was built after the first one was destroyed. We don't have the temple anymore. Okay? The, the, the Bible says we are the temple of God because we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. All right, So those are special ceremonial laws that apply to Israel. Jesus fulfilled those. They don't apply to us anymore. So, so far you're saying, okay, good, Bo. So far you're telling me the Old Testament law doesn't apply to me, so where does it apply to me? Now we get down to the third tier, which is moral law, okay? Civil belongs to Israel, fulfilled. Ceremonial belongs to Israel, is fulfilled. Moral, the heart of the law. That applies to you now as much as it ever has before. Those Ten Commandments, when it says, thou shalt not kill, guess what? It means the same thing today it meant yesterday. It meant that for Israel, it means that for us. Okay, the moral law. And what Jesus did when he fulfilled the law, he did not erase the moral law, he elevated it. All right, Jesus said, you've heard it said that if you have committed adultery, you have sinned. But I have said, if you've had even lust for another woman, you've already committed the sin in your heart. He elevated it. He didn't diminish it. He elevated it. So we as Christians need to understand the moral heart of God's law to know how we are supposed to live. Now, at the same time, we cannot fulfill that in our own strength, and that's why we need Jesus every day. We needed Jesus to fulfill the law for us, and then we need Jesus to live out the law in us every day, every single day. So as we talk about law in the next few minutes, I want us to think about the moral law. When you leave here, don't say, Pastor Bo said that we still live under the law, so that means we have to build a temple. Or we still live under the law, which means we've got to sacrifice animals. No, Jesus fulfilled all the civil requirements and all the ceremonial requirements, but the moral requirements. Okay, If you have an image of crown for civil, if you have an image of temple for ceremonial, I want you to think of the heart for moral. And that belongs to us as much as it belonged to Israel. All right, So put that in your heart 
as we walk through this. All right. As we walk through the 11 verses, I want us to look at three aspects of things that are taking place here, and I want to apply it to us as the local church in 2018. All right. So as we look at the first five verses, number one, let's look at the protection of God's law. Protection of God's law. All right. Keep your eyes on the text, verses one through five. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. All right, here's the picture. In the words of Larry Munson, get the picture. All right, now I've got a few dog fans in here. Here's the picture. Paul, the apostle who's wrote, written most of the New Testament, is writing a letter to the young apprentice, Timothy. Okay? When you think of Timothy, think of someone probably my age or a little bit younger. And Timothy has been in charge to be the pastor of the church at Ephesus, and he's young. I know what that's like. And he's trying to govern people and ask for God's help. And so Paul is giving him instructions on how to govern the local church. What should the local church look like? What makes it a church? Because here's the deal. Every church is a little bit different, and it should be. There are aspects of local church life that should reflect local community culture. All right? There should be. A difference in how one church sounds or looks or dresses or how the church is organized or the service of worship. It all should look different because it should reflect who you are and all of us are different. All right, But that there are some things that have to be the same or you're not really a church. And that's, what, that's basically what's happening here. Paul's writing this letter to young Timothy and he's saying... <clears throat> If you're going to pastor this church, you have got to hold on to the things that make a church what a church is. You cannot deviate from this because if you do, then you no longer truly have the word of God and you are no longer the people of God. You will lose your identity. So that is what he's telling him in these first few verses. After we get through the, uh, the greeting in the first two verses, in verse 3 he's, he's talking about, you know, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. Okay, that's the church that Timothy's called the pastor. And then he's saying, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. All right, let me just tell you from a pastor's standpoint. I was asked to, be, uh, to put my resume in several years ago. August 1st will be three years now, or be, be moving into my third year. It'll be two full years that I've been the pastor here. And when I got asked, the one thing I did was I spent a lot of time starting to build my own job description according to the Word of God. I said, God, before I ever become a pastor, please tell me exactly what my job description is. Not only did I have classes on this at seminary, I spent a lot of time in prayer and I said, God, what is a pastor? All right, again, all, every pastor's different. We all preach different, we dress different, we act different, we should be different. But what makes a pastor a pastor? All right, I said this the week that I preached here and you voted me as your pastor. I do not believe that a pastor is a CEO that has to rule and make every decision and is, is more of a dictator. And I do not believe on the other side that a pastor is a chaplain who just comes and preaches and goes home. Okay, A CEO has a place in the business. 
A chaplain has a place in the military or the hospital, but neither one of them is a pastor. A pastor, most prominently in the New Testament, is called to be a shepherd. And a shepherd, I believe, knows, needs to do four things. A shepherd needs to know, lead, feed, and protect his flock. If I'm going to pastor you, I need to know who you are. That's why I come to your homes and pray. Uh, I need to lead. I need to seek God's vision for the future of this church and then cast that vision. All right, I need to protect. Okay, and that's why we have a prospective member class. No one joins the church until I've had a chance to get to know them and they've had a chance to get to know me because when people let anybody just come down the aisle and turn around in 15 seconds and they join the church, that's how wolves who pretend to be sheep get into the flock of God. And I will protect this sheep with everything I have because God has entrusted you to me. And the other thing is we feed the sheep. And this is the choicest food that you'll ever dine on. All right? If I ever deviate from this, then I have forgotten one of the primary aspects of being a shepherd. And so Paul's saying to Timothy, go ahead and pastor the church. You may not have it all right. I know you're young, and they may challenge you in many ways, but know what it is to be a shepherd. So one of the very first things that he says is, guard sound doctrine. Because here's what Paul knows. When you lose sound doctrine, you lose the church. And when he's talking about sound doctrine, the word he's talking about is gospel. When you lose the gospel of Jesus Christ, you no longer have Christ. You have a false image of who Christ is. And so he's saying that you have to protect the gospel. And so I know that word doctrine, it kind of scares people. It actually frustrates other people because when you study theology, which is incredibly important, theology is the study of God. All of us have a theology. I say this all the time in our prospective member classes. People say, ah, don't give me any theology, just give me Jesus. Well, who is Jesus? Well, he's fully God and fully man, and he died for the forgiveness of my sins. What's a sin? Well, a sin is anything you say, think, or do that disobeys God. Well, sounds to me like you're a theologian. Everybody in this room is a theologian. Every single one of you, before you ever even got saved, you had a theology. The question is, do you have a good one? Do you have a biblical one? All right, so what he's saying here is people in the church at Ephesus were clouding what is most important. They were coming up with all kinds of myths and genealogies and doctrines that either didn't make any sense or they clouded the understanding of what was most important. And what is most important is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. One thing that, I, again, I, I've taught our Sunday night crowd, I've taught our prospective members, and, and someday in the next year or two, I'd like to have this put on charts that are hung up in our Sunday school rooms to keep us from ever getting into silly arguments, all right? I have what, what I call a theological triage. Here's what I mean by that. If you haven't heard it, most of you have in here. If you ever go to the hospital and you go to the emergency room, you have what's called a triage nurse that will come into the emergency room and they'll analyze you to see if you have a paper cut or a, a limb that's falling off that may have to be amputated if it doesn't get operated on within 20 minutes, all right, so obviously the most important things get taken care of first. So they have first tier, second tier, third tier issues that they walk through before you get to see a doctor in the emergency room. Well, I believe the same should be true of our theology. Here's what I mean by that. We ought to have our focus on first tier issues, second tier issues, and third tier issues. What do I mean by first tier? First tier is gospel stuff, what you must believe to be a Christian. You cannot disagree with this and still be a Christian. Those are the main things, okay? That is the nature and deity of Jesus Christ as fully God, fully man, all right? That is also the nature of human beings as made in the image of God but sinful. 
That's the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's the gospel, salvation by grace through faith. And that's the Bible, the authority of the Word of God. If you cannot fully affirm any of those things, then I would doubt your salvation because everything that I just said is key to your salvation. Now, second-tier issues is more denominational. This is not what I need to believe to be a Christian. This is what I need to believe to be a faithful Southern Baptist in our church. These are things that you can willingly disagree with with your friends, but if you want to come to this church, this is just how we perceive things. So, for instance, we have two ordinances, the Lord's Supper and baptism. And for church government, we believe in congregational government, which means when we vote, the whole church gets a vote because the authority, we believe, belongs to the church. But here's the deal. I have a father who's a Pentecostal. I have a brother who's in a non-denominational church. And I have a sister who's a Lutheran and many cousins who are Methodists. So we're a kingdom family. All right, so second-tier issues are nothing to disagree with outside the church walls. They're really not. All right, that does not mean that you're any more Christian or less Christian than anyone else. It's just how we have convictions of Scripture according to our own tradition. But most people disagree on the third-tier stuff. And the third-tier stuff is the view of end times, how we perceive the book of Revelation, uh, the, the use of miraculous gifts, okay, healing and tongues and prophecy, how that fits into the church, or the, the relationship of sovereignty versus free will. There have been many a church in this community that have split right down the middle over that issue, and I'm telling you, it's not worth splitting over. There's enough mystery there that we can agree to disagree. We can hold our own convictions, but we can disagree. Now, why do we have those three tiers? I set that up as a pastor because... I want to make sure as a church we never take our eyes off of first-tier issues. I'm not going to, lo- I'm not going to get in arguments over the third-tier stuff. We can talk about it, but if we disagree, we disagree. But I will die or get fired or thrown in jail over the gospel. I will die or get thrown in jail over Jesus being fully God and fully man, of human beings being made in the image of God but sinful in need of salvation, that salvation was made by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and that the Bible is the authoritative word of God. I'll never take my eyes off that because if I do, I'm no longer your shepherd. And that is exactly what Paul is telling Timothy. People in the church who call themselves teachers are stirring things up And they're clouding what's most important. And what is most important is the gospel. It's the good news. So how do you, we all define gospel differently. I'm still working on a a perfect definition. I asked Eddie Jones and some others in our church, Dave, to come up with one sentence. My sentence is still too long. I need to shorten this. But if you ever talk about what's the gospel, I would say it's this. It's the good news that Jesus Christ, through his miraculous birth, perfect life, sacrificial death, and supernatural resurrection has offered us eternal forgiveness of sin as human beings made in the image of God and offered us eternal life in the kingdom of God as the ultimate act of the grace of God. All right, the kingdom or the gospel is about a kingdom. It's about the plan of salvation and it's about Jesus. It's forgiveness of sin Entrance into the kingdom of God for the grace and the glory of God. It's the good news of Jesus Christ, if you want to boil it down. Uh, Dave always says the gospel is Jesus in my place. If you want to make it even shorter. The gospel's Jesus. And we can't mess this up. And by the way, the gospel is not something that you lay the foundation of, build on, and then forget about. It's the foundation that holds you every day. 
It's the foundation that cannot be removed. You need the gospel today every bit as much as the day you got saved. It's not just a formula to get you into the church. It's the foundation that holds the church. You need the gospel to be a better husband. You need the gospel to be a better employee. You need the gospel to be a better friend. You need the gospel to be a better servant and to be who God's called you to be. The gospel is something that we need every day. And so, again, number one, Paul was very, very concerned about the protection of God's law. But number two, we go from the protection to the perversion of God's law. Look at verses 6 through 7. It says, Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. All right, these are people inside the church that don't understand why God handed down the law to Moses, and they don't understand how it applies, and so they're making things up, and they're putting things on people they can't hold. All right? False teachers basically do two things. They add to God's commands, or they teach that the law can save you. All right? First, adding to God's commands. If you ever hear a pastor tell you that you must do something in order to be saved, and that is not repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, that is a false teacher. That clouds the gospel. All right? And that needs to be dealt with. And so Paul's telling Timothy, go into that church and let them know Jesus is the foundation and there is no other foundation by which you may build your lives or the church. All right, so we can't add to God's commands, but we also can't teach that the law saves. When God handed down the law through Moses to Israel, he never intended that law to be something that actually would save them. It would actually show them that they needed to be saved. And we're going to talk more about that in a second. All right, but let this sit on us for a second. James chapter 3, verse 1 warns us about things like this. It talks about it, not all of us claiming to be teachers. It says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. That is sobering. And here's why. If you miss what's most important, and I'm not saying that you have to be a scholar to be a teacher, but you do have to be someone who loves Jesus and knows the gospel to be a teacher in his church. And if you teach anything contrary to the gospel, you could really lead somebody astray and you will have to face judgment for that. That's why as a pastor, I spend an awful lot of time studying and praying because I don't want to lead anyone astray. I don't. I want you to love Jesus more when you leave this place in a few minutes than you did when you first walked in here this morning. And I want you to be more clear on the gospel and how it applies to your life every day than when you first came in this morning. And it is something that is deeply, deeply rooted in my heart. Not all of us should be called to be teachers because we could be in danger of perverting the law of God. But finally, if we looked at the protection of God's law and the perversion of God's law, third and finally, let's look at the purpose of God's law. Look at verses 8 through 11 as we round out the passage. It says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Let me boil all this down in the last few minutes we have left. Why did God give us the law? give you three reasons why. 
He did it to reveal God's character. He did it to convict the sinner, and he did it to point to Jesus. So let me start with the first one. God gave us the law to reveal his character. All right? We want to, if we need to know that there's a God, God reveals the law so that you know how holy and loving and perfect God is. All right? If we didn't have the law, we could walk outside and nature would show us that a God does exist, but we couldn't know anything about that God. We couldn't know how holy he is. We couldn't know what he expects of us. But he gave us his word so we do know. But now we move a little bit deeper. Not only does it reveal the character of God, but it convicts sinners. And this is where it should hit you between the eyes today. Every single person before they ever get saved has has what I call the I'm a good person syndrome. Guess what? I had it. You know, in the beginning of service, when I say, uh, close your eyes and we'll go to confession and if, let God bring to your mind anything that you've done wrong this week that would, that would disobey God. Years and years ago, maybe a decade ago, when I was a Lutheran, we would pray that uh, similar prayer in service. And I literally would struggle to think about things that I sinned against God in. Guess what? I don't struggle to think of things anymore. I can tell you a sin that I've struggled with since 10 o'clock this morning. I mean, because the closer that you get to God, the more radiant that his light is and the more it will shine into the darkest places of your life. The reason that we have the law is that so no one will ever fall into the deception that when you die, you'll stand before God and be declared innocent because you're a good person. All right, I talked to a brother of mine in Christ this morning at this church who visited one of his dear friends and he was explaining the plan of salvation and the woman said to him, but I'm a good person. I do good things. When you die, I'm going to make it as clear as I can. When you die and you stand before God, if you have ever had one thought in 90 years that dishonored God, even a thought, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You will not enter the kingdom of heaven unless Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. Because Jesus was perfect in every way so that when you die and you stand before God, you will be declared innocent and perfect by his record and not yours. I say this out of love. If you believe in your heart that you're going to heaven because you're a good person, please grab me when the service is over and let's talk. Because that is not the gospel. No one, not one person in all of eternity who has never placed their faith in Jesus will ever see the kingdom of God because no one is good enough. The Israelites in the Old Testament, they died and some of them did go to heaven because they had faith in Jesus who was coming. They didn't know his name, but they had faith in the one to come. They had faith in the Messiah. We on the other side of the cross have faith in the one who has already come and who's coming back again. There is no other name under heaven by which we may be saved than the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the crystal clear gospel. And don't let anybody leave here today not knowing that none of us are good in the eyes of God, but He is so loving, and He does love you more than I can put into words. And He made this amazing offer, but you must repent and place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the law reveals how holy God is. It convicts us that we are not holy, and it points us to Jesus, both for salvation and then sanctification, which is that daily changing where we're becoming more and more like Jesus. After you get saved, if you think you no longer need the gospel, then what I'm here to tell you is this. God has a purpose for your life, and you will not achieve that purpose without the power of Jesus. You won't do it. You will not do it. Every single law in this book is like a river that pours into the ocean of the gospel. And we need this gospel in our lives. So how do I sum this up as we draw to a close? 
In one sentence, I hope this will all make sense. God's law was fulfilled eternally through Christ's obedience so that we could live out God's law daily through Christ's power. Say it one more time. God's law was fulfilled eternally through Christ's obedience so that we could live out God's law daily through Christ's power. The gospel of Jesus Christ is about his perfect life, living the life that you should have lived. It's about his sacrificial death, dying the death that you deserved. It is about his supernatural resurrection, making a way from death to life. It is about his heavenly ascension, sending down the Holy Spirit so that he could live in you and work through you to do what you could not do yourself. And it's about his second coming. One day Jesus will come and make all things new. That's the good news. And Paul was telling Timothy, a young pastor in a small town that was becoming a bigger town, do not lose sight of this. This is the foundation that you have to build on. And we at Cedar Street Baptist Church, and for those of you visiting who are representing other faithful gospel preaching, teaching churches, know this. There is no other foundation other than Jesus to build on. And that is not only the foundation for your salvation, it is the foundation that makes you a better mother. It's the foundation that makes you a better father, a better friend, a better spouse, a better employee. It's the gospel that we need every single day. So, as we enter into a time of invitation, I want to ask you this. Where is this first order doctrine of the gospel in your life? First and foremost, did you come in today, and just be honest with yourself, did you come in today and possibly think that you could stand before God and be entered into God's kingdom because you're a good person. If you believe that, I'm not condemning you, okay? What I'm telling you is I believe that sitting in the church pews for a long time, all right? I was sinful and I didn't understand, but then I read the Bible and I understood, all right? So if, you, if you're that way today, you're in good company because all of us at one time believed in the I'm a good person syndrome. If you believe that, I, I'm begging you, Look into the law of God and see how holy he is and know that you cannot maintain his law. There's no way you could do it. Nobody can. All right, it says, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Have you, have you, said, have you said a lie one time in, in the last 70 years? Yes. Have you lied this month about something? Probably. All right, because it's part of our sinful nature. So don't leave this room today unless, unless you have confessed with your mouth that Christ is Lord and believed in your heart that God has raised him from the dead because it is those two things that the Bible says you will be saved. But if you are a Christian and you begin to think that the gospel was part of my past, it got me into the kingdom, now I'm living the kingdom life, you don't move past the gospel. It is the foundation that you build everything on. All right, so maybe, maybe this is a day that God is enabling you to get rid of the distractions in your life that have taken you away from the gospel. Things that are clouding your judgment, things that are confusing, uh, th- things that are not helping you grow in your walk with God, things that are keeping you away from Bible reading and prayer and, and serving in the church, things that are just getting in the way of you and Jesus. Today's the day to go back to the gospel and say, Lord Jesus, I want more of your power in my life. I need the gospel now more than I ever have. Will you forgive me and will you help me? And that is a prayer that he will answer. That is the reason why he has laid down his law. Let us pray. Father, 
You are so mysterious, and yet through your word, you have made it clear that you are holy and loving. In your holiness, we could never, ever achieve your standard, but in your love, we can receive your grace. So, Father, I pray a special blessing upon everyone in this room and the families they represent. Father, would you let not one person leave today without understanding the truth of the gospel and understand our calling to respond in repentance and faith. If there's one person who is struggling with the I'm a good person syndrome. Father, would your spirit just rush in upon them? And Father, I pray that they would be deeply convicted that you are full of grace, but you are also holy and they'll be judged by your standards and not theirs. Father, let no one leave the sanctuary today without coming to a saving knowledge of Christ. And for those of us that do know you, Father, help us to lean in on the gospel more than we ever have to live the life that you've called us to live for your glory and for our good. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.